All righty. You want to head back to your seats and grab your Bibles. be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13, as we return to our series in Mark's gospel. We took a little break through Advent and Christmas uh, to explore kind of some of those wider biblical themes of the promised seed of Eve and Abraham and David coming on Christmas Day, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But now we are returning to our place in Mark's gospel, Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. And uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, part of our kind of modus operandi here, part of our, our method of preaching is, is to simply uh, plant ourselves in a particular book of the Bible and then sequentially work our way through that book. And so that's what we're doing with Mark's gospel. We started um, uh, about nine months ago in, in, in Mark's gospel, and we've been slowly just kind of working our way through Mark's gospel, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and, and unpacking what we find therein uh, as this is the inspired word of God, and, and it's profitable for teaching and for correction and for life and godliness. And so we want to explore what God's word says and what it says to us today as we work our way through Mark's gospel, and that's what we're doing, Lord willing, this morning. Uh, If you've turned to Mark 6, verses 7 to 13, you can stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy, because this is the inspired word of our God and of his Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it is authoritative It is joyful news. It applies to us today. So let's listen to it as such. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Perhaps you've heard of or perhaps even seen the classic World War II film, The Dirty Dozen. It was released in 1967. It tells tells the tale of a a group of 
misfits, rejects, outcasts, criminals. And they were murderers and mobsters, religious fanatics, and, and all of them were in, in prison for life. Some of them were actually awaiting execution. And yet this, this ragtag group of misfits in this film were offered the possibility of pardon and a mission. They were brought together by the United States military. They were trained and sent to launch an all-out attack behind enemy lines in Germany. It's a, a mission that would lead almost certainly to their deaths. But if they should make it through their mission alive, they would come home pardoned and released to freedom. And now this, this movie has gone on to be something of an inspiration for plenty of other movies and sequels and writings, stories since. You know, perhaps you're familiar with Quentin Tarantino's 2009 adaptation of the film starring Brad Pitt. I won't say the name of it from the pulpit. Um, or maybe you're a comic book fan and you're uh, into uh, uh, DC's Suicide Squad. I've not seen that myself, but uh, the, the maker of it has publicly noted uh, that the, the movie was inspired by the Dirty Dozen. Well, this morning we find in Mark 6, 7 through 13, it's what I'd like to call the original Dirty Dozen, right? Uh, the, the, the Dirty Dozen, which really would go on to inspire all other Dirty Dozens. Here we find fishermen, tax collector, a zealot, society's misfits, rejects, outcasts, all called together by Jesus, pardoned for their sins, and sent behind enemy lines with a mission. So we come to Mark 6, 7 through 13, we, we find what we could call perhaps a, a short-term missions trip. Perhaps you've been on one of those yourself before. Well, the disciples are, are sent on something similar here. Jesus sends the 12 on a short-term trip with a particular task. And, and, and kind of with that, with this particular task, we, we need to be careful. Because Part of the problem with the way some Christians can read passages like this is some of us can, can take passages like this and tend to read them as if they're, they're prescriptive rather than descriptive. And some might look at the disciples being sent out and Jesus' particular instructions here and think, well, these very specific instructions are, are for us and how we ought to live today uh, as Christians on mission today. And yet what we find here in this passage is not universally prescriptive instructions for all disciples of Jesus everywhere and throughout all of time. It's merely describing the event that took place when Jesus sent out the original dirty dozen, if you will, on their short-term missions trip. This is not the Great Commission, which is prescriptive for us today. That comes later. This is a short-term trip with instructions for the disciples who were sent on that particular trip. And yet, on the other hand, while this is not the Great Commission, that great mission that Jesus has sent His church and all of His disciples with, while this is not the Great Commission, it does offer some, some helpful principles and guidance and encouragements for us who are stewards of the Great Commission today. While, while, while this text is not prescriptive, there is helpful application for Great Commission people and churches today. And so this morning, I want us to see together how this passage shows us that we are a sent people, an empowered people, a simple people, a rejected people, and a proclaiming people. 
And all of this will show us that Jesus' people are sent by him, equipped for their mission. And so first look with me at a sent people. Verse 7 says, And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And now, of course, you know this is not the first time that we've seen the twelve mentioned in Mark's gospel. In Mark 3, 13 through 15, we already saw the, the twelve. They were chosen by Jesus. They were among his disciples. They're not his only disciples that we see in Mark's gospel, but they are especially set apart by Jesus for his particular purpose. They're called to be particularly close to him. So we saw in Mark Three, that they were called to be with him, and they're also called to be sent out by him to preach and cast out demons. They're they're set apart for special ministry as as the apostles. And and this is similar to maybe the way that pastors might be especially set apart amongst all the disciples of a church. We saw all of this in Mark 3, 13 through 15. And if you remember with me, when when we looked at that passage, when we saw the original formation of the 12, we saw that that this number is significant. And it's not just because good things like donuts usually come in 12s. It's not just significant for that reason. It's significant because in Jesus choosing 12 disciples, he was saying that he is reconstituting the people of God in his new covenant that he's bringing. And with that, the 12 are therefore representative of the entirety of the new covenant people of God. They're foreshadowing in Mark's gospel what we can expect of all of God's new covenant people. In sending out the 12, Jesus is showing us that this new covenant people that he is forming is a sent people, a people of mission and purpose in the world, a people sent by him to to push back spiritual darkness and to represent Him in the world, to proclaim the message of our King. And not only that, but notice, notice that they not only represent the entirety of the sent people of God, but notice that they themselves are sent as a people together. They're sent, it says, two by two. The the, the Greek literally says duo, duo. They're sent as these dynamic duos fighting back evil and pushing back darkness through their message of repentance. And there's good reason for this. There's good reason for this, being sent out duo, duo. You know, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 4.9 tells us that two are better than one. Two are better than one because, you know, two can better face, they're better prepared to face the challenges that inevitably come when living in Christ's mission and ministry. Whenever one faces discouragement, if there's two, There's another there to encourage whenever one is tempted. There's another there to exhort whenever one's gifts limit their fruitfulness. There's another whose gifts make up for their lack of giftedness. And more, it's it's always better to be sent in relationship and community than to merely go it alone. That's why the local church exists. And here's where we find one of those helpful principles in this text that apply to us today as we live on mission for Christ. Part of what this means for us to be an evangelistic and and missional people is to be a communal and relational people. The Great Commission we've been sent on today is not, it's not an individualistic enterprise. It's a communal enterprise. we're, We're always better equipped for faithfulness and fruitfulness when we are together rather than separate. You know, there's an old saying that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And so it is with the Great Commission. And this is, this is very important to emphasize here 
because there's a very common misconception about Christianity in general and about mission and evangelism in particular that these are, are merely individualistic callings. You know, people often say that the Great Commission is the business of, of every Christian, and, and rightly so it is. But part of what we often assume when things like that are, are stated is that every Christian is called to do the Great Commission alone as an individual. And that's simply not the case. Christianity is a communal faith, a faith wherein you are part of a community, you belong to a family, you're part of a people. And this people possess a shared mission and purpose together. We're sent to evangelize together, sent to disciple and and teach as a unit, as a collective, as a family. All with different gifts and passions functioning as, as one body to witness to the grace and glory of Christ together. And that's always more faithful and fruitful than than going it alone. You know, Leslie Newbegin, he went so far as to say that the best defense of the gospel is the congregation that believes it. Genuine Christian community is the best witness to the truth and power of our message. And think about the, the Eve of the Eve service that we had about a week and a half ago. And think about the, the candles that we lit at the end of the service as we sang Silent Night. Now imagine, imagine in that service all the lights were out and we lit only one candle. How much will that single individual candle light up the whole room? It won't hardly light up the room at all. But, but when each and every person is, is holding a candle, collectively lighting up the room, the entirety of the room is lit up. Well, likewise, when we're a people who share our lives and, and our mission, we offer far more light to a world of darkness And if we're just singular individuals seeking to do mission and evangelism on our own. And that's, that's a nice thought, you might say, um, but how might this be practically applied? Uh, how can we live into this identity as a sent people together? Well, one way that we can apply this, uh, maybe you remember Pastor Dan, well, he did a, a training, a Veritas Equip class a, a couple of years ago uh, as he was seeking to encourage us and, and equip us toward our collective mission. You might remember him talking about using this language of, of building and bridging relationships. And that, that's, that's helpful language for us as we seek to live on mission together, building and bridging relationships. Building and bridging relationships is an important way that we can be on mission together as a community. So you're called to build relationships with people in, with people in our lives that need to know the love of Jesus. We serve them, we eat meals with them, we listen to them, we help them, we engage in these kinds of activities with our unbelieving neighbors simply because we love them, because as followers of Christ, we, we want to care for them and serve them well. They're, they're not projects of ours, we just love people, and so we engage in these kinds of activities. But, but also, because we love them, we want to connect them with the people and the Jesus that we love, and so we bridge relationships. We bridge relationships, we bring those people that we've built relationships with, into relationships with others in our church. We invite them to have dinner with us and another couple from our church. We invite them to to lunch with us and another member of our church. We we invite them into our community group. We invite them into our Sunday gatherings. We we bridge relationships, and all the while we're seeking to, to love them, to listen to them, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, not as individuals, Not merely as individuals, but as a community. We're seeking to to live as what we are, ascent people. And then what's more is that as ascent people, 
verse 7 here also shows us that we are an empowered people. Look at the, the latter half of verse 7 there. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So here we see that in being sent out, uh, the twelve were inevitably going to encounter some opposition to their mission. And this happens anytime the kingdom of God moves forward in the earth. So we have a powerful enemy. Satan and his demonic army are opposed to us. They, they want to harm us. They want to thwart the work of God among us. Richard Loveless, in his great book that you should read, it's called Renewal as a Way of Life, he put it succinctly. He said, we are continually subject to attack at the devil's initiative, but we are also continually attacking his forces as we struggle to advance the Messiah's kingdom through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. It's Jesus' people we're, we're sent, we're sent to push back darkness, and therein, as we are sent, we will encounter an enemy who seeks to oppose us at every turn. For Jesus wants his people to be well-equipped and spiritually armed as we're sent out. So he sends his disciples out, empowered with authority over unclean spirits. And today, on this side of Christ's victorious death and resurrection, on this side of his, his ascension and his sending of the Holy Spirit... We possess an even greater power. Check one, two. Is that all right? I'm back. All right, we, we've been given an even, uh, an even greater power and authority over spiritual darkness. And we've been given the very life and power of God within us. And in Acts 1, 6 to 8, the disciples, they come to Jesus after his death and his resurrection and, and, and they ask him, they say, is now the time? Is now the time we're going to restore the kingdom to, to Israel? And listen to what he says. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, it's of this day that Jesus spoke of in John 14, 17, when he said that, that the disciples, when he was sending them out, you know the Holy Spirit. You know the Holy Spirit because he dwells with you. But then he speaks of the day of Pentecost. He says, but he will be in you. He will be in you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. And when the day of Pentecost comes, which has now come, he will be in the people of Jesus Christ. Now the day of Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as God's people. We are empowered by God and His life within us. We're thereby equipped for spiritual warfare. We'll encounter in the mission that He's given us. We're, we're equipped for these things. And indeed, we, we, we will encounter spiritual opposition if we do live on this mission given to us by Jesus. Again, Richard Lovelace, he puts it thus, as much of our discernment of satanic powers comes as we follow the Holy Spirit's guidance and mission and ministry, as we begin initiatives for the kingdom, events will turn in a direction precisely calculated to block our efforts. As we live for witnesses as Christ, for Christ, we will be opposed. It's going to happen. And yet, so often, as modern Christians, we live as people who have no such enemy. We live as people we have no such warfare. We live as people who have no such power. 
We can so often tend to think that, that all that exists is all we can see. And yet perhaps you've noticed over the last year, we've spent a lot of times looking at, at scriptural texts that speak the nature of the warfare that we've inherited in our life in Christ. I would remind you, just a year ago this week, we started a, a sermon series where we walked through uh, on spiritual warfare in, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Paul exhorted us there to, to put on the spiritual armor of Christ in our war against the devil. He told us to arm ourselves with the words of Holy Scripture and with prayer and with the very power of Christ as we move the mission of God forward in our time. We've also spent a significant amount of time in Mark's gospel over the last year. And what have we seen continually? Jesus encountering demonic opposition and casting out demons and, and his temptation of Satan in the wilderness. We just also looked at, just a month ago, we looked at Genesis 3.15. And what did we see there? In the beginning of the fallenness of our world, a promise that God's people were always going to be at war with Satan and his demonic army. Friends, you can't make much sense of Scripture unless you reckon with the fact that we are in a spiritual war against Satan and his demonic army. But even still, we don't fret because Jesus, our victorious one, he has given us power and authority in spiritual conflict. He has defeated Satan and triumphed over him in his cross and resurrection. And he has given us the power of Christ within us to trample Satan under our feet. The very power of Christ has been afforded to us in our union with him by the Holy Spirit. So that Satan can do nothing to truly harm us. We're an empowered people. And the next we find that we're also charged to be a simple people. Simple people. Pick it up in verse 8 there. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Notice, notice how lean their provisions were. How lightly they were, were traveling here. They, they, they could take a staff to support their Knees and backs as they walked, I suppose, the reason for that. But not two coats. They could wear sandals, but not two coats. Whenever they stayed with anyone during this trip, they were just to stay with the first people who offered housing. They weren't to change houses later on because, you know, so-and-so down the street has an in-ground pool and a hot tub. They were, they were to stay where they were, were planted until they left. This is light. This is not luxurious travel here. And there were two, at least two reasons for this. For one, and this might seem obvious, these lean provisions required the 12 to, to trust in God's provision for them while they were on their mission. They were told to, to not travel with food and, and money. And the immediate question might have been then, so, well, what are we supposed to eat? Well, they just had to trust God to provide for that, didn't they? And he did provide. If you look at, at Luke twenty two thirty five, 35, before Christ went on to his passion, he knew that they were going to be without him, that they were going to be sent out soon. He asked them, he said, when I sent you out, he, he reminded them of this very thing, this very event. He said, when I sent you out without a money bag or a knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. We didn't lack a thing. 
We see here how Jesus was teaching and training his disciples to rely on and depend on and to trust in him for provision. Within the, the lean provisions also get at something of the urgency of their mission. You see, Jesus' ministry in Israel was, was brief, three years. And so he sent his disciples out to ensure that more people would hear about the arrival of his kingdom and the call to repentance while there was still time. This was urgent. And in fact, some have even pointed out the, the similarity in Jesus' instructions here to the instructions for the Passover meal in Exodus 12, 11. There, Moses, he was instructing the Israelites in their eating of the Passover meal. And he told them to do it with a kind of haste and urgency. Listen to this. He told them, in this manner you shall eat, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You see how they were to eat with a sense of urgency and haste. And, and the similarities in these instructions here have, have caused several commentators to notice how Jesus is calling for a kind of urgency here. He's saying to the twelve, you don't have time to, to get bogged down with worrying about and seeking to have this luxury or that luxury. You need to get out there just like our forefathers needed to get out there in the Exodus. And again, this is, this is one such place where we need to be careful to recognize that these particular instructions here are not binding for us as followers of Christ today. Some of the people in the Jesus movement just not too long ago did this. They, they, they walked around in sandals and a, with a staff and a robe, and that was pretty much it. And they were, would go out and evangelize in this way. It was pretty weird. But, but remember our categories that some texts are descriptive and there are texts that are prescriptive. And part of our interpretive task when we read the Bible and we read narratives like this in the Gospels is to determine what, whether what is being said is prescriptive for us today or describing what happened. And when examining this text, it's obvious that what's taking place here is descriptive and not prescriptive. These instructions are not universally, they're not universal moral principles binding on every Christian. They were context-specific to this particular man on this particular trip. And yet, of course, there are applications that can be made here that inform our life and our mission as Christians today. And that is that, you know, as people who are sent by Jesus Christ on his mission, that we ought to live simply. You know, our, our lives ought to be marked with a sense of simplicity and trust and urgency as we are about our master's business. And, 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 and you know, I won't get too specific here. I'm going to leave the particulars to you because I can't say with biblical authority that it's sinful to, like, go on an extra shopping trip or to eat uh, an expensive meal or to have a nice car. It's not sinful to go on nice vacations or to go out to eat or to have a nice pair of shoes or a nice coat or whatever else kind of applications individuals might make here. But I will say this, it's always worth asking. It's always worth asking. Whatever it is, whatever it is you give your time and attention and money to, it's worth asking is this serving to orient me Godward and to advance his mission? Is this serving, whatever it is you're giving your time, attention, your money to, it's worth asking, is this serving to orient me Godward and to advance his mission? And if the answer is no, is it really worth giving your time and attention and money to? 
perhaps this is a good thing for us to consider as we enter into this new year. It's kind of a natural time for us to, to, to take time and take inventory of our lives and reflect and, and think about what it is we give our time and attention and money to and to simply ask, what is serving me? What, what is serving to orient me Godward and to advance his mission? And what is, what is superfluous? What is a distraction from that? I was talking with one of our community group leaders over dinner this past week. And he was telling me that over dinner this past week about how he's taking this time to transition into the new year as an opportunity to, to reassess and reflect on what he gives his time and energy and attention and money to in life. And he was telling me that, you know, so often, perhaps his tendency in the past was to, to consider questions like that in categories of what is sin and what is not sin? What is permissible and what is not permissible? And as long as it wasn't sinful, he felt fine about doing it. And he was saying that he's starting to think with, with a better set of questions, and that is, how is whatever I'm doing serving to stir up my affections for Christ? Is it serving to orient me toward him? Is it serving to advance his mission and his cause in the earth? Those are better questions to ask than, is it sinful or not sinful? And John Piper, he communicates this very thing in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. Listen to what he says about this. He says, people who are content with the avoidance ethic generally ask the wrong questions about behavior. They ask, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with this movie or this music or this game or these companions or this way of relaxing or this investment or this restaurant or shopping at this store? What's wrong with going to the cabin every weekend or having a cabin? These kinds of questions rarely yield a lifestyle that commends Christ as all-satisfying and makes people glad in God. It simply results in a list of don'ts. The better question to ask about possible behaviors is, how will this help me treasure Christ more? How will it help me show that I do treasure Christ? How will it help me know or display Christ? How can I portray God as glorious in this action? How can I enjoy making much of him in this behavior? Perhaps those are the kinds of questions we might all ask ourselves as we enter into this new year. Perhaps asking and answering and, and living according to, to questions like those will help us see in this upcoming year that some of the things in our lives are superfluous. We can trim the budget here or there in order to give more to the mission and ministry of the church. That we can, we can stop spending so much time on, on social media and, and giving this our attention and our time and, and direct our attention more so to, to evangelizing our one and, and spending time with them and having them over for dinner and building and bridging relationships with them. All that to say, we, we might live more simply so that we might live more missionally. Those are better questions to ask. And then we also see as we move on that as a people sent by Christ, there are also times we're going to be a rejected people. A rejected people. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And now this, this, this theme of rejection, it's an important theme and 
that we've seen in Mark's gospel so far, but particularly in chapter 6 here, seems to be such an important theme as the chapter begins with Jesus facing rejection in his hometown. And then it goes on to, to show us the rejection of John the Baptist for his witness in our upcoming text. But, but here, Jesus prepares his followers for the event that they are rejected. And in so doing, he's showing that rejection of his disciples and their message will indeed come. If the world rejected the master, it will reject his disciples too. And so he gives instruction for what they were to do if and when they face rejection. They were to simply shake off the dust of the town that is on their feet and move on. And this was a a sign or a testimony to those who rejected them that they were unclean. That's what the sign means. You see, in, in that time, it was common for Jewish people when they were traveling into Gentile territories, whenever they exited a Gentile area and were heading back into the land of Israel to shake off the dust that was on their sandals and and on their feet before entering into the holy, sacred promised land. It was a way of saying, you know, you Gentiles in your lands, you're, you're unclean. But as Israelites, as the people of God who live in the promised holy land, we are clean. You are not. And yet even... In the land of God's people, even amongst the professed people of God, Jesus knew that his disciples and their message would be rejected. And so he prepares them, he shows them what to do when that time comes. Part of what we need to understand is that God's people have always been a rejected people. Read Hebrews 11 if you want to see what I'm talking about. God's people have almost always been rejects, outcasts, pushed to the margins of society. That's the norm. That's the norm. And, and that's something that, that you know, we're obviously not used to in the West, but, but Christians in the West are beginning to, to face rejection and, and beginning to be pushed to the margins of society. And not so long ago, the vast majority of the people in our society, they may not have agreed with us on everything, but they at least they saw us as, as respectable, perhaps even honorable and admirable in some places. But those days are over because of our biblical convictions concerning things like sexuality or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and eternal hell and other light controversial doctrines. We as Christians that believe the Bible are viewed as being immoral. We're viewed as being what is wrong with society. We're, we're, we're living on the wrong side of history, people say about it. On this point, Tim Chester, in his book, Everyday Church, he says that we have become outsiders just as Jesus was an outsider. We are marginal because Jesus is marginal. The cross is the ultimate expression of marginalization, and to follow Jesus is to take up our cross daily. It is to daily experience marginalization and hostility. Being on the margins is normal Christian experience. Christendom was an aberration. Rather than assume that we should have a voice in media or on Main Street, we need to regain the sense that anything other than persecution is an unexpected bonus. And this is, of course, just reiterating what Jesus himself has told us. He said in John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, it has hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. People are going to reject you. 
We need to expect that. We are rejected people following a rejected Lord. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're rejected. And lastly, we need to move on. We're also a proclaiming people. A proclaiming people. We are people with a message sent to proclaim it. And toward the end of, of this chapter here, Mark 6, we, we find the disciples return from their trip and they convey to Jesus all that they said and did. Well, what is it they said and did, you might ask? They did precisely what they saw Jesus do and say in his ministry. We've seen this throughout Mark. Listen to verses 12 to 13 that kind of summarizes, it's a summarizing word of what they did in their ministry. The, the, this could very well summarize the ministry of Jesus so far in Mark's gospel. Listen to what it says. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And now we, we don't have time to cover everything I'd like to in these two verses, but I want to highlight here the, the, the preaching and teaching ministry of the twelve. I want to highlight this here because we can trace this thread of, of preaching a message of repentance throughout Mark's gospel so far. The first thing we find in Mark's gospel, Mark 1.4, is John the Baptist bursting on the scene. And what is he doing? He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we find Jesus in the very same chapter, not too long after, Mark 1.14 and 15. As he bursts out on the scene, as he enters into his public ministry, what does he do? He went out proclaiming, it says, the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Of course, he, he also cast out demons and healed many people like he sends the 12 out to do here. But remember Mark 1.38, what Jesus viewed as, as central to his ministry. Now, there, there were so many people coming to him from all over for healing and deliverance in Capernaum. And instead of staying there and healing all who came to him, he says, it, there in Mark 1.38, he says, let us go on to the next towns and I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Why did he come? Why was he sent? Primarily to preach the message of the kingdom of God and of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And now, the disciples are sent out, called to the same task, armed with the same message, a message of repentance, so that it might reach more ears throughout Israel. And of course, they're, they're given power for accompanying signs of deliverance and healing here, just like Jesus did. But even still, the accompanying signs, those are not central. They're essential, of course. We always adorn our gospel word with good works. But our good works are not central. Jesus' good works are central, and thus preaching is central. People are dying in this world. People are dying without the knowledge of Christ and being condemned without Christ. And so they need to hear about his coming. They need to hear about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They need to hear his message. And friends, our, our, our task is no less urgent today than it was for the disciples in his time. We've been entrusted and armed with a message to proclaim to a lost and dying world. We've been entrusted and armed with a message to take to the nations of the earth, the message of the kingdom of God, of the coming, of the dying, of the rising of Christ, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And notice here, notice here how Mark kind of sums up the entirety of the message 
the disciples had as, he sums it up as a message of repentance. Friends, repentance is an essential part of the message of the gospel. You see that? This is important to point out because so often for us as, as Christians today, the word repentance can be pretty sparse in our vocabulary. When you think of the gospel and the ways that we communicate it to others, the doctrine of repentance should always be included. I remember a while ago, a friend of mine was telling me about a, a, a time when he was sharing, he, he said he was sharing the gospel with this, this young man that he knew, and he told me that what he told this young man is that God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life, and then he prayed the sinner's prayer with him. That's not the gospel. And that's not the response to the gospel that the Bible demands. Friends, the gospel is that you and I were far from God. We've sinned and rebelled and run away from Him in disgrace, and therefore we are guilty of cosmic treason. We are condemned rightly to an eternity in hell of the lake of fire. And yet Jesus, our kind and gracious Savior, He has come to usher in the saving reign of God. He has lived the life that you and I should have lived. And as perfect humanity, He has died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die, and He did so in our place. And three days later, he rose again, victorious from the grave, overcoming death, ushering in his new creation. And now, because of that, he offers us the forgiveness of sins in his name. All you must do is repent, turning away from your sin and turning to him in faith. And if you do, you have forgiveness. You have peace with God. You, you await his gift of eternal life in the age to come. That's the gospel. That's our message. It's a message that calls and demands that people repent. To repent, it, it means to, to turn. That's what the word means, is to turn. It means to turn away from sin. And, and to turn, not, not to moralism, not to law, not, not to new, uh, a new set of moral platitudes. Repentance is the call to turn to Jesus, to turn to Him, to find your all in Him, to look to Him as the master and redeemer of your life. That's repentance. That's our message. That's the message that we're sent to proclaim. And we should point out here, because the vast majority of you in this room are Christians, we should point out here that repentance is not something that one does at the beginning of the Christian life alone, but this is something that we continue to keep with as a daily attitude and posture before the Lord. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that among the twelve here was Judas. Judas was sent out there with the twelve, among the twelve, proclaiming that people should repent, but he was a hypocrite who did not practice repentance himself. He serves as a warning to us, doesn't he? As those sent with a message of repentance to continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance ourselves, lest we be hypocrites like Judas. Repentance ought to be our daily posture before the Lord. That's why Martin Luther, when he penned his 95 Theses, the first of which he stated that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entirety of the life of the believer should be one of repentance. And likewise, John the Baptist, he, he called God's people in Matthew 3 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is something that you continue to keep with. 
It's a daily posture and attitude. So every day we ought to awake and turn afresh to our Lord and Master Christ and say, I, 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 I turn to you, Lord, less of me, more of you. I, you are everything to me. I renounce my sin and my wickedness and I cling to you as my Savior and Master and Lord. You are my salvation. That's the kind of people that this dark and dying world needs. It needs a broken, humble, contrite, repentant people. It needs a people proclaiming a message of repentance who are themselves daily practicing repentance. We've come to our time. Tomorrow is it's the first Monday of the new year. T- today we gather. Tomorrow we are sent out into our various vocations and callings. My friends, may we go as an empowered people, as a simple people, as a people expecting and therefore resilient in the face of rejection, and as a people who proclaim the gospel and kingdom of our Savior. May we be that for Christ and His kingdom. May we be that for this world and for one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus sending the 12 here. We thank you for the lessons that we find therein, the principles, the encouragements, the knowledge of what we can expect. We pray that as we go out into the world in this week and in this coming year, that we would go furnished by the very power and authority of Christ, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, to be faithful witnesses for Christ in our city, in our neighborhoods, and on to the nations. Prepare us for that now as we partake of the supper. Feed us with the very life of Jesus Christ, with his body and blood, that we would be strengthened and nourished for the mission that you've granted us. In Jesus' name, amen.